many of you, I'm on a number of different email lists that I get emails from all kinds of different places and different things. And some of them are trying to sell me certain products. And some of them are trying to sell me or get me to buy into a program that if I would just buy this program, that all my problems will fade away, that, that I'll have every answer that I ever need, every church situation will be taken care of if I'll just buy into this program. And some of the emails I get are newsletters that I've subscribed to. And some of them for, for personal reasons, for some of them for uh, ministry reasons, but one of the ones I get uh, is full of articles for church leaders. And, and so uh, I go through this, this email list, and actually I, it's one of those that like you sign up for it thinking you're going to get like one email a day or, or something like that. I end up getting like four from the same group every single day, and they all have pretty much the same articles. So some of them I just, get, I just skip through, and, but I scan through the newsletter and see the different articles, and some of the articles I read, some of them I just throw out depending on the what the title of them is, but I ran across one a couple weeks ago that the title kind of intrigued me and kind of caught my attention, and the title of the article was this. It was, Topics I Wish Pastors Would Preach On More Often. Now, anytime somebody tells me what they want me to preach on, sometimes I'm a little skeptical of that, Um, but this was one I I thought I would pay attention to, and so I started reading the article, and the article starts with this confession from this guy who's writing this article, and he said, first you need to know I'm not a pastor, okay? I don't preach every Sunday like some of you men do. And, but, but here's things that I wish that, that you would preach on more often. And he's coming from a place that even though he's not a pastor, he helps churches. He kind of comes along churches and, and tries to see how they can be more effective and efficient um, in their operations and how they can reach the world with the gospel a little easier. And so in this article, after his confession that he's not a pastor, but here's what he wants people to preach on, the very first thing on his list is the Bible. Right? And so let me read to you what he says. He says, I know that you preach out of the Bible every Sunday, but when was the last time you preached about the Bible? Why does it matter? Can we trust it? Biblical illiteracy is skyrocketing today, and I'm convinced that one of the biggest reasons we are not making an impact on today's culture is that most Christians have no solid foundation for their faith. And he goes on to encourage pastors. He says, don't just preach out of the Bible. Preach about the Bible. Give your congregation the confidence in God's Word that they need to encounter today's culture. And so this morning, as we look in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, I know some of you looked at the bulletin this morning already, and you're excited because you're like, wow, he's only going to use two verses. We're going to get out of here super early, all right? Don't, don't count on it, okay? Because these two verses are massive. They are packed with so much good stuff. So we're going to be in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, or excuse me, yeah, 12 and 13. And this is my goal, that we're going to preach from the book, but we're also going to preach about the book. This is what God's message for us is this morning. It is about the Word of God and why we can trust it and why it's important, because this is so much more than just a book. It's more than just a history book. It's more than a psychology book. It's more than a book of, of philosophy or practical advice. This is so much more than any other book that you've ever written or read in your life. And so I want you to join with me in Hebrews chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 12 and we'll read just 12 and verse 13. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and the hearts and the thoughts of the heart. Verse 13, no, cre- no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your word this morning. 
And God, I pray this morning as we have sang and we have invited your Holy Spirit to come and be in this place to feel this room, God. I pray, God, this morning that we are overwhelmed by the, the grace that is felt in your presence. God, I pray that we are overwhelmed by the power that you have available for us this morning. God, I pray this morning as we hold your word in our hand, God, we realize the power that it has, the life that it contains. And God, I pray that we will not be guilty of just folding this up and putting it away again and waiting for next Sunday to come back around. God, this morning I pray that you speak life to us through your word. God, I pray that you reveal your power and your energy to us this morning. God, I pray that you teach us in a way that about your word, why your word is true, why we should have confidence in it. And so, God, I pray this morning that we will be students at your feet. God, that we will sit and we will listen to the words that you have spoken to us this morning. God, so that when we leave here, we are ready to impact this culture that is around us. We are ready to, impact, to make an impact on the world that is around us because we have a solid, firm foundation to build our life on and to do life about. And so, God, I pray this morning that you will speak loud and clear to us. God, I pray that we are ready to listen and receive. And God, I pray that we're ready to be changed by your word this morning. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. On August the 22nd of 2020, the Southfield Fire Department paramedics responded to a call of a 20-year-old female who was having trouble breathing. And some of you may have read this article. Uh, it it, it, it kind of caught my attention because it was very unusual uh, when I heard about it on the radio and I went and looked it up. But they responded to this call um, about this lady, this 20-year-old lady who was having trouble breathing. But by the time the paramedics arrived, uh, they found that the lady wasn't, uh, wasn't not just having trouble breathing, she was not breathing at all. Her lips had already turned pale, and so they checked her pulse multiple times and in multiple places, and they couldn't find any pulse, and because of that, they, they kind of jumped into what they normally do. And so for the next 30 minutes, they, they did all their life-reviving measures they could do on this lady, CPR, different medications they were given, everything they could do in the next 30 minutes. And after 30 minutes passed, they realized that nothing they, was, they were doing was going to work. This lady was done. There, there was nothing, there was no chance to bring this lady back. That she was expired. That she was lifeless and there was no hope of giving life back to her at this point. And so with no vital signs that they could detect, there was no pulse, no breathing, no nothing. They even rechecked the lady several times because one of the family members just kind of kept feeling it. And she's like, I, I think I feel a pulse. I, I think I saw her move. And so the paramedics just assured her, no, ma'am, I assure you, we have checked everything. We know what we are doing. We are trained in this. I assure you that what you've seen and what you may have felt is just a natural body's reaction. It's a lifeless body. It's just reacting to the things that we put in it, to the things we've done for it. This lady is expired. There is no hope. There is no life. There is nothing in this lady. She is finished. And so they, they assured the family of this and uh, and so then they did what they were supposed to do. They called in to the local emergency department, and there was a physician there. Uh, they gave him all the information, the, and, and the physician, through the phone, pronounced the lady dead because of the information that he was given over the phone, of all the measures they had taken, everything that was happened, all the times they had checked this lady. And since there was no foul play suspected, the police department, they notified the coroner, and the coroner uh, released the body to the woman's family, and they can make arrangements for the funeral home to pick the lady up. And so the, the fire department and the paramedics having done all they could do for this family and this lady, about 9 o'clock, they put this lady into a body bag. And they zipped her up, 
and they left her there for the family uh, to make the arrangements with the funeral home. So the family immediately called the funeral home, and about two hours later, the funeral home shows up to pick up this lady um, and take this body bag full of this dead body to the funeral home. About 30 minutes after they left, the family gets the very frantic phone call from the funeral director saying, you guys need to, need to get here quickly. You see, because about 30 minutes after the, funeral, after the body left the house, the embalmer was getting ready to start his work. And he walked over to this lifeless body and he started to unzip the, the body bag. And as soon as he unzipped it, he noticed the lady was staring at him. And that was very unusual. Normally a dead body is not staring at you. And he was like, well, that's very odd. And then he got a little closer and realized not only is she staring, she is breathing in this body bag. And so he immediately yells to his staff. The staff starts calling 911 and says, you've got to get here. You've got to get somebody here. We've got somebody who's having trouble breathing. And she just got here. She's, she was dead and now she's, she's not dead. And so the, the 911 dispatcher, bless her heart, was kind of thinking, this has got to be some kind of joke. I mean, this is, we have trained professionals. We know when something is dead and when someone is alive. We know this. We, this is not how this works. And so she told the funeral staff, listen, I, I, this is not funny. You need to stop joking around. We have real emergencies that we have to get to. Right? And so there was this, this kind of debate going on between the 911 dispatcher and the staff of the funeral home. And finally, the owner of the funeral home walks over, he grabs the phone, he says, listen, I'm telling you, you've got to get somebody here now because this lady is breathing. She's having trouble breathing, but she is very much alive, right? I'm telling you, she is alive, and you need to get somebody here right now. And so because she was, the, the funeral home was in a different area, a different set of uh, paramedics come, and they're in no hurry because they're still kind of convinced this is some kind of practical joke, that the funeral home is just playing on them. And so they walk in, and they find, sure enough, here is this lady who not only is eyes wide open, she has a pulse, and even though she is having trouble breathing, she is breathing on her own. They, they found out what the words of the man said. She is very much alive. And so what they thought was dead was actually alive the whole time. And so they took her, and they took her to the emergency department, and uh, they, they took her to the emergency room and, and did different work there. But for some of you, Sitting here this morning, you have had a very similar experience with God's Word as the people in that story. As I, as I worked through that story and as I read through that story, I kind of thought this is what some people experience with God's Word. You see, some of you may be sitting here, and some of you watching online, some of you that will watch this later, you have, you have come to this expectation that God's Word is expired, that it is done. There's really nothing there. Sure, it was a great story. There's, there's all these awesome stories. You can go back and read about these great people who did great things. And, and you can read about this great time in history and, and maybe get some lessons from some of these people about how to be a good person. But for most part, you would say the Word of God is dead. It is expired. It is useless. Any practical information it had, any practical advice it had, th those things are irrelevant to us today. You would say that the Word of God is inert. It's powerless. It doesn't have anything useful for you or anyone else today. Yeah, sure, it may have been good a long time ago. It may have had some relevance a long time ago. But today, it's done. It is completely expired. And so you've kind of written off the Word of God. It's just being this ancient text, this ancient book that people just keep talking about. And really it's no different than any other history book or no other book that you come to encounter. And so some of you have honestly written off the Word of God as it is dead, it's expired, and it's of no practical value. Kind of like the first set of paramedics did with, that first, with the lady 
that she is expired. She is really of no value any longer. And for some of you, that's not the case. For some of you, you came to the Word of God maybe with this skeptical idea that you were skeptical. You heard people talk about the Word of God. You've heard people uh, maybe even beg you to show up and hear about the Word of God. And, and for some of you, you came this morning maybe because somebody begged you to be here. And so you came and you're like, listen, what is this whole church thing? What is this whole Bible thing about? And so maybe some of you walked in these doors, some of you joined us online, and, and you kind of came in with this expectation of, yeah, I'm just going to go and I'm going to do this because this is going to make somebody else happy. And you didn't really expect to encounter anything. And i got to be honest with you, for some of you sitting in this room, that's how you came to faith because you came with this skeptical idea that there was nothing to the Word of God, but all of a sudden you pulled back, you unzipped the body bag, you, you flipped over in the pages of God's Word, and what you found was not a lifeless document. Instead, what you found was something that was alive and something that was full of life and something that had words that were meant for you. And so for some of you, you came to faith through this skeptical idea that the Word of God, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, you just didn't really know, but all of a sudden you kind of, through your experience with it, you've kind of come to confirm what the Bible says about itself in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, when he tells you the very first thing is that God's Word is alive. You see, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, he lists out several things to consider about God's Word and why we should have confidence in it. And the very first thing he says is that the Word of God is alive, right? And he says in verse 12, for the Word of God is living. And this word alive means that, that it's not dead. It's not expired. Okay, And that's the word that, that uh, we use in the medical field. We use it in nursing homes, pyramids. That when someone dies, you just say they expire. Their time was up. Right? And so for some of you, you need to realize that God's Word doesn't have a time limit on it. Right? It didn't, when 2020 hit, it didn't stop being God's Word. When, 20, when 2000 changed over and Y2K and everything was going to fall apart, God's Word didn't stop becoming God's Word at that point. It lived through all of that. It's lived through centuries. It's lived through decades. It's lived through thousands of, of, of years. And it's come to this point where it is still alive today, which means it has a message for you and it has a message for for me. You see, when you read God's Word, it is not just a history book. It is not just telling you the story of David defeating this huge giant. It's not just telling you about God's ability to part the Red Sea. The reason He's telling you those things is because the same God that did those things is the same God that is active and alive today. God's Word has a message for you, just like it did for the people in the first century that read it for the very first time. It is alive, and it is telling a story that involves you and involves me. You see, the Word of God is complete, but the story that it tells is not finished yet. Because it tells of thousands that will gather around the throne of God one day. And guess who those thousands include? You and me and generations that come after us. You see, God's Word is alive because it has stories and it has a message for you and for me and for every generation that comes before us and every generation that comes after us. The wisest man in the world, King Solomon, wrote in the book of Proverbs talking about his father's instructions in God's Word. Basically, he says in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 22, he says, When you walk here and there, they will guide you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. Get this, when you wake up, they will talk to you. 
You see, some of us have come to the Word of God as if it is dead, as if it is useless. And yet the wisest man in the world says, listen, this is alive. It has a message for you. It will watch over you. It will guide you. It will speak to you. W.A. Criswell, a great preacher, he simply says this, that it speaks to me. It smites me. It wrestles with me. It frowns upon me. It smiles upon me. It weeps with me. It sings with me. The living Word of God speaks to the human heart. It is alive. It continues to live. It abides now in me and it abides forever in all generations. He goes on to echo the fact that Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, which was the verse on the end of that video that we watched, Simply says this, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. I don't know if you realize this not, but the one thing that will never expire is the word of God. Our days are limited. We are unfortunately are like every other thing in this world that we have a date that is set and when our date comes, we will expire. Every generation before us has had a date set and when that date comes, they expire. They no longer exist. They no longer have life in them. That is going to be you and I one day, but the Word of God endures forever. It continues. And so even though the seasons change, the grass withers, generations come and generations go, God's Word remains the same. It has life in it and it speaks this message of life through every Every generation. And so when you come to the Word of God, don't just come to the Word of God expecting to just to read stories of old people who passed away and you're never going to meet ever again. Don't just come expecting to read about all this stuff that happened thousands of years ago without expecting it to impact your life. Because the Word of God is alive. But the other thing that he says about the Word of God is that it is effective. It is powerful. This past week when the weather started to change and temperatures dropped rather drastically for some of us, uh, some of us adjusted really well to that and some of us did not. I don't adjust to real quick temperature change, but I'm just going to be honest with you. When it changed from 70 to 50 in, like, in a week's time, I, t- I need some adjustment period in there. Right? But one of the things when the weather drops so significantly that I have to do is I have to winterize my camper. Now some of you have campers, some of you know this process, some of you don't, but it's a real simple process. What you have to do to winterize your camper is you have to get all the water out of it and you have to put antifreeze in the water lines, okay? Because if not, then when the water freezes, it expands and it breaks the water line. So then when you turn on your camper in the springtime, you're going to have some major problems, okay? So when the temperature drops, and I'm a little paranoid, like when I see 32 on one of my free weather apps, it's time to winterize the camper, right? Because that's a big investment. We don't want to ruin that puppy, all right? So this week it was going to happen, and so I got everything ready. We were going to winterize the camper. I got all my stuff ready. I went to the camper, and I got ready to do this, right? And so the first thing I have to do is I have to push this button, move this little thing out. And, and so I went and I pushed the button, but nothing happened. And I was like, oh, this might be a problem. Because it's hard to winterize something that needs power, and there's no power. Right, so I went and I pushed the little button again. I tried it a couple times, and you know, like you're like, all right, maybe maybe the button's not working. So I'll try another button, and it didn't work. I tried something else, and it didn't work. And I was like, we're in big trouble here, because I've got to get this thing winterized. I'm on a time crunch. I've got to get this thing done before it really freezes hard tonight. And I've got to get this this antifreeze into these water lines. I've got to get this water pump working. But the problem was the source of power for my camper is this little battery that sits up front. The whole thing runs off a battery. All right. But that battery was dead, right? Because I didn't unhook it last time when I pulled it in. So it was dead. So it had been sitting there and run out all the energy, all the electricity that was in the power, all the power that was in this box, it wasn't there anymore. It was dead. 
So the only hope I had to winterize my camper, to finish the task I was set to do, was that I had to connect it to a source that had energy available. Because this little box had no energy available, right? My camper had no energy in and amongst itself. I had to connect it to something that could supply energy to it, all right? Now, for some of you, you come to the end of the day, and you come to the end of the week, and you are honestly like my camper, you have as much power and energy in your life and in your day as my camper that I push the button and nothing works. And for some of you, you are struggling through life day in and day out because you're relying on this box that's inside of you to supply your own power and your own energy. And the Word of God is not inside of you. It is outside of you. And it is the source that provides power for your life. It is effective and it provides energy for you. See what he says in Hebrews chapter 4. You see, the first thing he says is the Word of God is living. And the second thing he says in verse 4, for the Word of God is living and effective. If you have a different translation, it may say it's living and it's powerful, or it's living and it's active, right? And neither of those are a bad translation, to be honest with you. And Actually, they're a fairly good translation. It can be effective, it can be powerful, it can be active. All those are fairly decent words. But the one reason I kind of lean away from the word powerful is because typically when we see the word powerful in Scripture, it's a certain Greek word, right? It's the Greek word dynamos, okay? Which is where we get our English word for dynamite, right? Which is very visual for all of us. We know dynamite, big boom, right? It's powerful. It can do some stuff, right? But that's not the word that we see in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Okay? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Greek word is ingres, right? which is where we get our, our English word for energy. Okay? So in the word of God, it is alive and there is energy within the word of God. Okay, so I want you to understand this too, because this is where I get—I love the science part of this. When I was teaching science, one of the lessons I had to teach was there are two states of energy: there is potential energy and there's kinetic energy. All right, so potential. So this is your science lesson of the day. So all you guys that are homeschool, count today as a class day. All right, because you're getting science in as well. All right, so. Potential energy is energy that is stored. It has potential to do something. It's not doing anything, but it has potential to do something. So a battery has potential energy. It is stored up. It is able to do something. It's just not doing anything yet. If I take something and I pick it up, it has potential energy. Meaning that if I move my hand, this book's going to do something. It's going to hit the ground with a thud. But as long as I hold it, the energy is just stored there. It's just potentially waiting for something else to happen, okay? Now, that's different than the other type of energy because the other, or not type of energy, but state of energy, the other type of energy is kinetic energy. And kinetic energy is energy of motion or energy of activity, okay? So if I've got this book, I'm holding this book in my hand, and all of a sudden I move my hand out from under the book, the potential energy becomes energy of motion. It becomes kinetic energy because all of a sudden that book starts to fall. All right? That battery that's supposed to power my camper that's not having any energy left in it right now, if it did, it would have potential energy, but it doesn't do anything until I connect to it. So what I had to do is I actually connected to another source of energy, and all of a sudden that connection powers what I needed to do. So listen, here's why I'm telling you all this. Because the Word of God is living and it is full of energy. But that energy is potential energy that is stored within the Word of God that is honestly just sitting there waiting for you and me to connect to it in a way that is meaningful so that that Word can do something effective and different. See, that's the reason that the Word of God is living, but it's effective because it has energy to do something. 
But for some of us, the reason we're not doing anything within God's kingdom, we're not building God's kingdom, is because we're not connected to the energy source that can bring us the power that we need. We're not connected to this energy source that's available to us. Let me ask you, when was the last time you felt so drained of everything and you felt so distant from God and so far from God and you went to God's Word and said, God, show me something here. And my guess is you didn't spend long in God's Word before God showed you something there. You see, the message is alive, but the power is there as well. And the reason that some of us come into these dry spells, the reason that some of us come into these ruts in our life, the reason that some of us are so honestly inefficient and ineffective in building the kingdom of God is because we're not connected to the energy source, to the power that is in God's Word. It is alive and it is effective. It has power that is there. And so what we honestly need to do is some of us need to pick up God's Word and we need to change our prayers a little bit because we need to pray that the potential energy of God's Word becomes the kinetic energy of our lives. That the energy that is stored in God's Word becomes the energy that flows in us and through us and activates our lives and determines the courses of our life. The energy that is in God's Word flows into us and makes us respond in a way that makes us active. You see, the reason that some of us are so drained is because we're not connected to the Word of God and we're missing out on the energy and the effectiveness and the power that is there and is available to us each and every day. It's so sad when we see Christians who wither away and yet they never connect to the source of power that they have. Instead, what do we do? We treat it like a dead body. We put it up on a shelf or we put it in our car or we put it somewhere else and we just let it sit there instead of drawing from the power that it has. You see, and something interesting happens when we put these first two ideas together that it is alive and it is effective. Something amazing happens when we consider these two ideas in contact with each other that, that is alive and inactive. You see, what it tells us when we put those two together is there is energy within this Word that not only is alive, but it has the energy and has power to bring life to those who read it. Right? So understand that the potential in this Word is not just that this Word is alive, but the potential is here that this Word can bring you to life as well. That it can determine, that it can bring and impart life to those that read it. It is through God's Word that we gain not only life, but eternal life for all of eternity. Let me show you what I mean. In Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 8, Paul writes this. He says, For you are saved by grace, get this, through faith. And so not of yourself is a gift of God. Right? So I want you to follow along with me because what Paul is telling you is the way you are saved is that God gave you a gift. He gave you grace. And you didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You never will. You never can. It is only a gift. And the problem is that some of us will never accept that gift. That's the faith part. All right? The gift is available to us. The question is, are we going to reach out and are we going to take hold of it? Right? So you are saved by grace, this gift that God gave you, through faith. Through our receiving of what God gives us. Okay? So that is how we are saved. But I want you to see what he also says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Because we've got to get this faith somehow. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. You see, the message of Christ is what is contained in the Word of God. It is what saves us. It is what provides eternal life for us. It is what gives us life through God's Word. So understand, you are saved by grace through faith. The way you get faith is through the message of Christ, which is in the Word of God. 
So the way that you get salvation is through the Word of God, showing you the message of Christ so that you get faith, so that you can receive the gift of God. Understand the Word of God is not only alive, it's not only effective, but it has the power and the energy to impart life into you. And not just life in this life, but life everlasting. It is through God's Word that we encounter the message of Christ. It is through God's Word that we come to the point where we realize that we are in sinners and we need salvation. It is through God's Word that we realize there is grace for us regardless of where you came from and what you've been through. There is grace for us and there is mercy for us. And the reason that God's Word has this kind of power and this kind of energy is because it is divinely inspired by the author and perfecter of life Himself. You see, the Word of God is God-breathed, and every word of it is precisely as it should be. That's the third thing that he tells us in this list about God's Word. It is, it is precise, exactly as it's supposed to be. And when we first started talking about the book of Hebrews, I guess it's been a couple months ago since we started in the book of Hebrews, but one of the things we talked about in the book of Hebrews, it is the only anonymous letter in the whole New Testament. Every other letter in the New Testament, there's several of them, every other letter tells us who wrote it, okay? And Hebrews is the only anonymous one. It, in, in no time does it say, this is who wrote this letter, right? The author doesn't identify himself in any way, shape, or form. He doesn't tell us any title or who he is, right? Now, for a long time, and I grew up this way, that people believed that Paul wrote the book of Romans, or excuse me, not the book of Romans, the book of Hebrews. He did write the book of Romans, there's no question about that. But we're in the book of Hebrews now, okay? So, the, for a lot of folks, they say that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And, and for a lot of folks, that's solid and a steady, but there's a lot of folks that are questioning that idea because it doesn't fit Paul's style. When you go back and look at all the other letters that Paul wrote, he's very open. And one of the first things he says is, this is Paul, and here's who I am. But it doesn't start that way. The book of Hebrews doesn't start that way. And so we'd find it very odd that Paul would start every letter, Paul an apostle, Paul a slave, Paul this, and this is who I am, and not start this letter that way. So there's some folks that believe Paul was the, the author, and there's other folks that say, no, Paul, Paul, this doesn't fit with what Paul wrote. It's not exactly like all the other stuff that Paul wrote. And so for some of them, they question, okay, if it wasn't Paul, who was it? And so other people will lean towards more Luke, all right? Luke being the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And so there's other folks that will say Luke is the one who wrote the book of Hebrews. And part of the reason they say that is because the language that's used here in chapter 4, verse 12, because the language that's used here is that of a physician. And that's what Luke was. He was a doctor. He was a surgeon. And so there's language that's in chapter 4, verse 12, that would be used if you were in that kind of medical field. Right? And so the words that he's talking about is this idea that, that you've got to address. Um, the, the, uh, so the words he's talking about are kind of in the middle of verse 12. So I want you to read verse 12. With me. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Right? So if Luke did write this, and I'm not, I'm not telling you that Luke did, because that would be beyond what Scripture tells us. Okay, I'm just going to tell you we don't know who wrote it, but it sounds like Luke in this one. But if Luke did write this, Luke would know that if you're going to do surgery, you've got to have two things. One, you've got to have the right tools to do surgery with. 
Okay? You've got to have something that's going to be able to do it and do it the right way. And then you also have the knowledge of how and when to do the surgery, to use those tools. Right? Because let's be honest, you may sleep in a... In a, a um, oh, I forgot the commercial all of a sudden. You may sleep in, in the, the Holiday Inn or the Motel A or whatever it is, those commercials that made you an expert. I slept in that hotel last night, and now you're an expert. You can do surgery. Some of you are not. You're with me. Okay, good, because I lost it. Uh, you may think that sleeping in that hotel is going to make you an expert in surgery, but I don't want you being my surgeon if you're not trained to knowing what you're supposed to be doing. Nor do I want you being my surgeon if you don't know the right tools or have the right tools to use, right? Now, many of you know I went to Gardner-Webb University, and, and I actually was uh, kind of on the pre-med track for a little while. That was my goal. I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, okay? And, and oddly enough, God said, no, no, you've got a different, I've got a whole different plan. I don't even trust you with a knife, much less you know, these other people are going to trust you with a knife, all right? I don't know if that was his reason or not, but that's, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. But I had a professor that was there, and he was retiring my senior year, and he was a great man. I loved him, uh, but I, I walked up to him one day, and, and he and I had a great relationship. I was actually his lab assistant, so I taught some of his freshman classes in the freshman lab, and uh, I walked up to him, and I said, um, I said, Dr. Parrish, you have crushed more people's dreams than all of Gardner-Webb University combined. And he just kind of looked at me, he's like, what do you mean? I said, Dr. Parrish, you know that all these people come in to Gardner-Webb and all of them want to be doctors and all of us want to be med students and all of us want to go in this track. But to do that, we have to pass organic chemistry one and organic chemistry two. And he said, yeah, I know that. And I said, and you know, because I grade your papers, that there's a lot of people who get into organic chemistry one who never make it to organic chemistry two. And then there's even more who get into organic two that never make it out of organic chemistry two. And I said, and all those people came to Gardner-Webb with dreams of becoming doctors and surgeons, and you just crushed them in two class periods. And his honest response, I'll never forget, he looked straight at me and he goes, well, Michael, I don't see as much as crushing dreams as showing them reality. And I was like... Well, that's kind of harsh, Dr. Parrish. I mean, you're like, what do you mean? He goes, listen, if you can't pass my class, I don't want you cutting on me. And I was like, well, touche. All right, I got no argument with you right there. I'm with you, Dr. Parrish. And so he was absolutely right because he knew that a doctor, a physician, a surgeon had to have the right tools, know the right tools, know the right information, but also be able to use those tools and have the wisdom and the knowledge to use those tools. And so in verse 12, the author, who could be Luke, could not be Luke, doesn't matter. The author kind of addresses both of these. And first he addresses the tool of God's Word. You read on in verse 12. It says, The Word is sharper than any double-edged sword. Right? And that's honestly the translation I grew up with. It's the translation that most of us grew up with. But this word sword can be translated a couple different ways. Right? It doesn't have to mean the sword. Like when I think of sword, like I think like a big, huge, like long four-foot sword that you're going into battle with. It can mean that. Okay? It can also mean a dagger or a knife. So think of something that was small that you could hide in your pocket and, and something much smaller than a sword. But it can also, this is the exact same word that would be used for a surgical tool that a surgeon would use. Right? This kind of knife. This very, very sharp knife. All right? And it's something that a surgeon could use in those fine details of the inner parts of the body. All right? And so I want you to think about this. When he describes the word this way, think about what he's telling you. The word is sharp. It means it has a very fine point to it. Right? It doesn't have rust on it. It doesn't have jagged edges. It's not almost perfect. It is perfect. Because, I don't know about you, but I don't want a surgeon who's going to do surgery on me that has a rusty knife. 
I don't want a surgeon doing surgery on me whose knife is almost perfect. It's just got a few little jagged edges in it. Now, if he's going to cut on me, I want it to be straight down the line. I want that thing to be so sharp, like you just look at it and you feel it cutting you. All right, That's how sharp I want that knife to be. That's how he's describing God's Word, that it is so sharp, that it's perfect. There's no little jags in it. There's no little dents in it. There's no little leeway this way or that way. It is that sharp. It is that precise. That's how he's describing the Word of God as being this tool that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is sharper than the knife that the surgeon would use to cut into someone. It is that sharp because there are no dent, there are no indentions, there are no mistakes, there are no errors in it. You see, the theological term we use to describe God's Word is that it is inerrant. Okay, now that's a fancy word, so you may want to jot that down. It's inerrant, meaning that it has no mistakes in it. It is sharp and is divisive and is just like that surgical sword. There's not little divots, there's not little leeway this way or that way, there's no gray. It is solid black and white, it is straight. There is no mistake, no error in God's Word. That God's Word contains precisely the words that He wants it to contain. That He supernaturally guided the authors to write the Bible exactly as He wanted it communicated. That everything in Scripture, every word, every letter is there because the author of life wanted it there. This is exactly the message that God wanted us to hear. Right? Now, while we're on theological terms, let me give you two more that are very important when we talk about the Bible. Right? The first term I want to give you is verbal, okay? Now, for most of us, verbal just means words that we say. But theologically, verbal means that every word of Scripture is God-breathed, okay? That every single word uh, is not just the ideas that are there, but the words themselves, right? So the very words are important that are there. God God doesn't just speak ideas and then let the humans fill in the, the words that they want to use. God gave them the exact words that He wanted them to use. Every single word in God's Word is there because He breathed it out. Right? And the second theological term is plenary, right? which means full or complete, which means for us that every part of the Bible is equally inspired. Okay? Now that doesn't mean it gives you the same warm, fuzzy feelings. All right? If you read the book of Numbers and you start reading this person had this many tribes and this many goats and this person had this many tribes, that's not very inspiring to me. Okay? But it's part of a story that God inspired. And so that part is just as important as the parts that I pick up and I read every single day like this gets me going in the morning. So every part of God's Word is equally important. Plenary means it's full and it's complete. Now, you're sitting here, you're thinking, Michael, this is not theology class. We've already been to science, now we're in theology. Why are you sharing this with me? Because the moment that we surrender either of these two ideas, or any of these three ideas, whether it be inerrant, whether it be verbal, whether it be plenary, the moment that we surrender any of these is the moment that God's Word starts to lose its sharpness. Let me show you what I mean. Because there are some folks, there are Christians who claim to be Christians, and they will tell you that God doesn't really care about the details of His Word. He doesn't care about the words that are in the Word. He just cares about the ideas that are there. And so the ideas are what you need to go for, not necessarily the words. All right? so don't pay attention to the words, just pay attention to the ideas that are there. Okay? Now that sounds like a nice idea, except what do we have? That God tells us that His Word is sharp meaning that it's precise, meaning that He put it in there for a reason. So I tell you that because there's groups of folks that will tell you that when the Bible talks about marriage, it talks about a committed relationship between two people. That's the idea behind God's Word. Okay, 
And that sounds legitimate. It sounds like that is an idea of Scripture. But let me tell you, that may be an idea of Scripture. That is not the words of Scripture. Because the words of Scripture about marriage is that a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Right? You see, when the words are important, we pay attention to the words. And marriage is not just two committed people. It is a man and a wife. The words are important because they dictate the meaning that is there. And so the moment that we give up the importance of the words and just say, oh, it's just the ideas, the moment that we give that up is the moment that we become the authority of what God meant and what God didn't mean. It's the moment that we become the authority and say, this is what the Bible is and this is what the Bible is not. It's the moment that we can change the words to meet the ideas that we want them to be. It makes me the authority over God's Word. And I don't know about you, but the last time I read verse 12, it says the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than a two-edged sword. It does not say the word of Michael Rakes is living and effective and sharper than a two-edged sword. It doesn't say the word of Cornerstone Baptist is living. It doesn't say the word of the Catholic Church is living. It doesn't say the word of the Southern Baptist Convention is living. It says the word of God is living. These words are not my words. They're not the church word. And if we mess them up, it is His word that we are messing up. These are God's words, and God's word is sharp because they're precisely what God wanted them to be. He recorded them, and He gave them to us. And God's word is sharp because every word is recorded in Scripture precisely and exactly because He wanted it that way. And if He didn't want it that way, He'd have used a different word in a different place. Why? Because He's God and He can do that. I don't get to do that, and you don't get to do that. His word loses its sharpness when we start to think that the words don't matter. David Gusick is a great commentator, and I read him quite often when I'm working on sermons, and he wrote this about these verses. He says, Often people wonder how a preacher's message can be so relevant to their life. They sometimes honestly wonder if the preacher has inside information about their life. And he goes on to say, But it isn't necessarily a preacher at all. It is the sharpness of God's Word delivering the message in just the right place. You see, not only the words themselves precise, but they're also precise in the fact that they can accomplish so much. The precision of the Word are there. They can pierce and they can penetrate your life in ways that nothing else can. If we read on in verse 12, he describes it as sharper than a two-edged sword. And he goes on to say that it's penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirit, joint and marrow. You see, the Word of God was never meant to stop at the surface. It was never meant for you to come in here and listen to the Word of God and just let it roll off your back. The Word of God was never meant for you to come in here and just listen to it and then go one ear and out the other. The Word of God was meant to be sharp and penetrating to the very soul of who you are, to the very heartbeat of who you are. The Word of God is meant to get into your life and make changes within your life so that you change on the outside from the inside out. You see, God doesn't care if you showed up this morning, you put on your Sunday best, and you were living like you were out partying all night Saturday night, and yet you showed up on your Sunday best. That's not what God's Word says. God's Word wants to get into the inside, so that you change from the inside, and what you wear on the outside will change, and how you act on the outside will all change, because God's Word is on the inside. You see, God's Word is meant to penetrate and get in the very deep, dark parts of your soul, the parts that nobody else can see, the parts that nobody else knows about. It gets to the very deep inner parts that we dare not expose to anyone else. And so for some of you, this is a great comfort because I want you to know, listen, the Word of God can see all the hurts that you have buried deep inside, the hurts that you have crushed down and you've crunched down and nobody else knows about. The Word of God can see them, can know them, and the Word of God can heal them from the inside. 
For some of you, there are scars that are on the inside that are deep and they're painful. And the Word of God is there. And the Word of God can find those on the inside and it can restore those, the, those scars and, and bring healing to those. For some of you, there is just brokenness. You've got a great facade that you put on every single Sunday, and maybe even every single day, that to the rest of the world, everything looks like it's right and perfect in your life. But if they knew what was on the inside, then on the inside you are broken, and you are shattered, and you are just trying to put all the pieces back together so that nobody knows that on the inside you are falling completely apart. You see, the Word of God can see the brokenness on the inside when nobody else can And the Word of God can penetrate and can heal and can fix the brokenness that nobody else sees and nobody else knows about. So for some of us, the fact that the Word of God is penetrating this deep into our soul is very comforting. But I've got to warn you, for some of us, it should be very convicting. Because not only can it see the hurts and the scars and the heartaches and the heartbreaks, it also sees the deep, dark sins that we hide away and nobody else knows about. You see, the Word of God can find those and it stands as a judge of all of those. So that's the last thing that God tells us about His Word in these two verses, that His Word is the only standard of judgment that there is. When I was uh, in school, I, I, I hated taking tests. I, I, I have test anxiety, and, and I just hated taking tests. But there were some teachers that I didn't mind taking tests for because they, they were very open they were very honest. Right? You know, some of you had teachers growing up that like you walked in on test day and you had no idea what to expect. But then you had other teachers that you walked in on test day and you knew exactly what the test was going to look like. You knew what, what was going to be on the test. You knew the material that was going to be on the test. And for some of you, you had teachers that were very gracious and very nice to you that they not only told you like what was going to be on there, the format of it, they told you exactly what was going to be on there. Exactly what the questions were going to be. And they even told you the answers. I had a, a professor when I was in college that this was what he did. Before test days, every class before test days was test review day. And he would give you this review guide. And you would go over this review guide in class. And then you would play this game. And it was the, it was the most awesome college class I ever took. We got to play trash ball and all these fun games the, the day before a test. And then we started to realize the reason he was doing that or what he was doing was that review guide and the questions he was asking us in those games, he was reading straight from the test that we were going to take the next day. And so all we had to do was pay attention on game day, pay attention on review day, and we knew exactly what to expect. We knew exactly the questions that were going to be answered. We knew exactly the answers to give. We knew the standard by which we were going to be judged because he told us the day before. You see, the beauty of God's Word is that it is exactly that. It is the standard by which we are judged. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder if at the end of our life what we're going to be judged, if we did right, if we did wrong. We have the answers. It is laid out for us. You see, the author, whoever he is, switches images here from a surgeon's knife to a courtroom. In the last part of verse 12 and verse 13, he switched this courtroom, and then everybody in this courtroom is the defendant. And we all must stand before this judge. The last part of verse 12, he says, It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. And then reading on verse 13, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must, excuse me, to him, of him who we must give an account. You see, this is not a judge that we can fool. This is not a judge that, that we can hide evidence from. This is a judge that sees everything. 
This is an all-seeing, all-knowing judge. There is not a thing that he doesn't see or doesn't know. And so all of our actions, all of our words, all of our thoughts are exposed before his eyes. There is nothing hidden. There, There is no place to run. There's no place to hide. There's no evidence that we can't be entered into this trial. And when it says it's naked and exposed, it gives this image of a, a wrestler who has basically been laid out in a chokehold. And he's just laying there. And he is completely defenseless and he he can't do anything. And so everybody can see him just laying there. And everything is exposed in that moment. Every part of him is exposed in that moment. And that's what he says will be at our trial. That every part of us, everything that is us, and everything that we thought is exposed. And the standard by which the judge will decide our fate in that moment It is the Word of God. We don't have to guess. We don't have to question. We don't have to wonder what God is going to judge us on at the end of our lives. We don't have to wonder if we've lived up to this standard or what the standard is. We don't have to wonder if we have done enough good. We don't have to wonder about any of that stuff because He's given us the standard by which we are judged. He's given us the answers to the test already. See, we don't have to wonder if we've lived up to the standards. We know we haven't. Why? Because God's words tells us that we haven't. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't have to wonder if we've done enough good to get into heaven because God's word says that you cannot do enough good to get into God's word or, or to get into heaven. You see, it is a standard by which we are judged is what this book says. And so every thought, every action, every, everything that we have must be in line with what God's word says. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, There are many times in my life that I would not want to put under the gaze of Christ. Yet I know there is nothing hidden from Him. He knows me better than my wife does, and yet He loves me more. This is more amazing, or excuse me, this is the most amazing thing of all of God's grace. It would be one thing for Him to love us if we could fool Him into thinking that we were better than we actually are. But He knows better. He knows all that we are and all that we think. And yet He loves us still. He knows our reputation and our justice and our judgments. And yet He loves us still. He knows the minute, acute, aware of every skeleton in your closet. And yet He loves us still. See, the standard of judgment at the end of our lives is not did we do good. It's not did we, did we do the right things. The standard of judgment in our life is simply did we accept the gift that He gave to us. In Romans chapter 3, it told us that none of us were good, that we all fail. But it tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God proves His own love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And He goes on in Romans chapter 10, 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What is the standard by which God is going to judge you at the end of your life? Romans 10, 9. Did you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord? At the end of your life, the only standard that you need to live up to is simply what God's Word says. The only judgment that He's going to pronounce is did you do what He told you to do? Did you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that Jesus is Lord, this is the standard by which we are judged. Not whether you did good, not whether you did enough bad, not whether you did so much good or so much bad or you did anything else. It is simply this is the answer for our judgment day. Let me finish with one last story that W.A. Criswell tells when he speaks of this passage. He says that during World War II, 
our soldiers were fighting a very intense battle, and they were trying to take over the Japanese island of Okinawa. And, and many of you may be familiar with that. It's, it was a very terrible campaign that, that we were losing soldiers, and, and they were fighting for every inch. Every footstep was a battle that they were going into. And, and every, every moment that they had was just this intense conflict, this terrible conflict that was going on between us and the Japanese at the time. And, and so they continued, as they continued trying to marching and taking little bits and little bits of the island, it just kept intensifying, 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 until they came to this one little bitty tiny village. And as they got close to this village, even from the outside, they noticed this village was very different than everything else. They described this village as a diamond in the midst of a dung hill. That's how they described it. They, they said this village was so different because while everything else was dirty and nasty and dark, just everything, he said the houses in this village were clean. The children were dressed and the people were gentle and, cur- and, and courteous. He said, instead of being met with gunfire, which they expected, these soldiers that came to this village first were met with two older men who not only welcomed the Americans, but they knelt down and they, they, they welcomed them in and were excited to see them. And the soldiers were so confused by this. They didn't know if they should trust this or not because everybody else they encountered had a very different take on who they were and what they were trying to do. And so these two men began to talk through an interpreter to the, the soldiers that were there. And they explained that 30 years ago, an American missionary had come to their village. And this American missionary didn't stay very long, but as he was there and he was trying to get into the inner parts of Japan, as he came to this island, he came to this village, he spoke with these two men. And he convinced these two men through God's Word that God was who He said He was and that Christ was the way, the truth, and the life. And these two men became Christians. And he said these two men took it upon themselves that as the missionary left, he left them one thing. One Bible. And these two men made it their job to spread the Christian message to the entire village. And so they began sharing God's Word and teaching God's Word. And so they even became involved in the school. And the curriculum of the school became the one Bible they had. It was the Word of God. And so these men said that since then, since this moment that we came to the faith, he says that we have done everything by this book. We built our community along the lines of this book. We built our houses and our homes and our lives. And we follow the pattern of the books. Of those one book. And the American GIs were so shocked that they just couldn't wrap their mind around this. And so they did what they, they thought they needed. They called for the chaplain and for the commanding officer. And so the chaplain and the commanding officer came from their post and they came. And the two men gave them a tour, this, this whole village. They showed them every part of this village. And were just amazed at how different this village was than anything else. And, and they were just shocked by how different this one village was amongst everything else. On the way back to their post, the, the chaplain and the sergeant were walking side by side. And the sergeant looked over the chaplain and he simply said this, Chaplain, I am convinced that we are using the wrong weapons to remake our world. He says, I've come to this conclusion that to fight is to fight again. To kill is to kill again. We will sweep out from earth the Hitler and the Mussolini and stand in the face of yet another brutal Stalin and something else that lies beyond that. It will continue and continue and continue. But maybe if we made our world different, maybe we ought to remake our world using Bibles instead of bullets. The Word of God is living and effective 
and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and the spirit, joint and the mirrors. It is able to judge the ideas and the thoughts of the heart. And the question for us this morning is simply, will we plug in and connect to the life that this Word has to offer to us? Will we allow the energy of this Word to connect to us, to become the kinetic energy that transforms our life? We'll invite the Holy Spirit to use God's Word to do surgery on in the very inner parts of us this morning. And we pray. Maybe we should be praying that we rebuild our world not with bullets, but with Bibles. Let's pray together.